Today, we're at a runner's mind speaking with a true running shoe expert about the top five running injuries, plantar fasciitis, metatarsal stress fracture, Achilles tendonitis, shin splints, and IT band syndrome. We're going to discuss the ways that runners can troubleshoot these injuries and keep running. Hi, I'm Dr. Christopher Segler, and thanks for tuning in to the Doc on the Run podcast, where we help you understand how to keep training and running even if you've been injured. Hey everybody, we're here today at the Runner's Mind, which is one of my three favorite running shoe stores in the Bay Area. And if you're, in case you're wondering, my three favorite and most recommended running shoe stores are Runner's Mind in San Francisco, Runner's Mind in Burlingame, and Runner's Mind in Lafayette. So there are lots of great running shoe stores, but those are the three that I recommend the most. Uh, but I'm here today with uh, Dawson. He is um, a, a bona fide running shoe expert. He's the shoe buyer. He knows more about shoes than uh, the overwhelming majority of people I talk to, including virtually every podiatrist that I know, including myself. So um, we're here today to talk about the most common uh, running injuries that we see and how runners can troubleshoot those injuries and uh, hopefully take care of them, keep training, keep running, and stay on track with their goals. Um, so Dawson, thanks for having me here today yeah, to talk thank about you. these. Um, so what do you think? I mean, what do you think are the most common injuries? I mean, I think Probably the most common one by far is plantar fasciitis. I don't know if that's consistent with what you yep. see. Yep. Yeah, that. yeah. Yeah, so that's bothersome, right? So plantar fasciitis, I mean, uh, it's very, very common. In fact, in the U.S., it's about 40, well, heel pain, which mostly is plantar fasciitis, is about 40% of visits to uh, podiatrists in the United States. And it's so common. I actually wrote a book on runner's heel pain. And the big thing that I see is that it's not that it's going to kill them, but it's disruptive. It, it basically, it doesn't often hurt so much that they just stop running, but it hurts enough that they kind of limit their running so much they're not enjoying it fully. And it may keep them just sort of like just below their optimal training. Um, it's, you know, it's bothersome, but it, again, it's not killing them. So, I mean, what do you see with plantar fasciitis? Is that sort of consistent? Yeah, that's absolutely consistent with what we see uh, with athletes coming to the shop, whether they're walkers, runners, or just fitness enthusiasts, they'll complain of arch pain or heel pain. It kind of resonates with everyone a little bit differently. Right. Sometimes it's a dull, achy pain. Sometimes it's a really sharp pain. And then we hear it a lot when it's the first thing they feel waking up, coming off the bed. Right. right. Yeah. So that's really what I hear as well. Like when, when a runner tells me, okay, I have this pain in my heel or my arch. And really the worst thing is when I get up and step out of bed, that initial step is when it's most painful. The reason that that happens is that there's fluid accumulation around the bottom of the heel. There's a nerve on the bottom of the heel and the plantar fascia is trying to heal itself. And when you get up and you step on it after you've been resting, it squishes the nerve, it stretches the plantar fascia abruptly, and it causes that sudden jolt of pain. So as you start walking it kind of loosens up so you know the big thing is that if that's your story the chances are that it's plantar fasciitis now what people worry about at least the ones that i see they call me because they're worried they might have a calcaneal stress fracture or uh, something a little more concerning in in a sense that they think it's going to break if they run on it and is that <laughs> right so you know they get worried and so then maybe it's that that's where i think the the dysfunction in their training comes is that they run and they're not really sure if it's plantar fasciitis and they're worried like, well, they know if they have a stress fracture, the thing could blow apart and explode and ruin them. And so they're a little bit terrified. Uh, so they don't maybe push as hard as they could. And, um, and that's what I, I really um, see. So with first steps, what do you guys recommend when somebody thinks they have plantar fasciitis? So oftentimes we want to understand their training volume. If there's any sudden spikes with activity or sudden intensity, uh, the other aspect we like to view is their footwear too. Are they wearing the right type of shoe? How old is that shoe? 
Because if you are training regularly, you want to stay on top of replacing that footwear uh, periodically or as often as necessary based on volume and intensity, quite frankly. Right. Yeah, so I do the same thing. When I see athletes at home, and that's one of the first things I look at, because if you take you know, any shoe, like this shoe, for example, if you take this running shoe and you run in it, and you, it feels great when you start running, you run, and it doesn't change. It feels the same from run to run to run, but after you've run a few hundred miles in it, you've compressed all the EVA in the midsole, and then it's a little more wobbly, and so you're pronating more, and it stresses the plantar fashion more. And so when I see athletes I actually look at the, um, the side of the shoe, and if there are wrinkles in there, then I just explain, well, the only reason there can be wrinkles is if the EVA has actually collapsed and crushed under there. And when that's happening, the shoe is less stable. If you take that exact same shoe, and then you come here, and you try on a brand new one, and you run down the sidewalk, they feel like completely different models. They don't even feel the same, right? <laughs> and um, so I think that that's really crucial. So one of the first things that you can do if you have plantar fasciitis is check your shoes and make sure that you, you don't have excessive wear. And the range is huge. I mean, you know, I weigh like twice as much as, as Dawson. So I can probably go twice, the, you know, or half the miles as he can before I wear out my shoes because the EVA is getting crushed under, under my um, bulk, let's say. And so uh, you have to really make sure that you're not overpronating, that your gait isn't off. And, and then, you know, you can, it's pretty simple. The way that I think about it is that um, if it sounds like plantar fasciitis, first of all, it's probably plantar fasciitis st statistically. So you can do a couple things. You could go see a doctor or you could just try to do the really simple things that'll get it better. And if it responds to that treatment, it's not a stress fracture because the stress fracture is not gonna get better. So, you know, I typically tell patients, you know, out of all of the hundreds of things that literally are reported to help with plantar fasciitis, there are really three that help the most. Icing it or doing something like icing to reduce the inflammation, uh, stretching a little bit in bed, doing the ABCs or some sort of activity like that where you just kind of loosen up the foot before you get up and step on it, and then doing Achilles tendon stretches to stretch the Achilles tendon and stretch out the plantar fascia and decrease the load to the plantar fascia are the biggest things. So most runners that start doing that in a few weeks will start to get improvement. And if it's improving, there's no way that you have a stress fracture because it's just not gonna get better with those treatments. And the other conditions that can mimic uh, plantar fasciitis, like a nerve entrapment or bursitis, they also don't really improve when you do those things. So that's what I generally tell them. What do you guys recommend? So we always want to troubleshoot certain areas like footwear. That's the key thing to look at if we need to replace that at all. And understanding that the individual tends to be on their feet all day long. And if you have a job that requires to be on your feet day in and day out on harder surfaces, we look at different solutions, right? Whether you're wearing something like a compression sleeve to help increase blood circulation or blood flow and muscular support, or if you need to add potentially an insole temporarily to alleviate the plantar loading or the weight loading throughout the course of the day, or a massage ball if you need that to help break up some yeah. scar tissue and again, just improve blood circulation in that general vicinity tends to help. Yeah, that really can help, you know? And so, you know, that's one of the big things. If you're gonna get some new running shoes, if you look at them, you see those little wrinkles on the side of the shoe that indicate that the EVA has been crushed and worn out a little bit, make sure that you bring them in because I think that's really helpful. Like, I like to see people's running shoes and analyze the wear pattern, look at how worn they are, all that stuff. And I would imagine that when you guys are fitting them for new shoes, that's also helpful because you can see if they are wearing out the shoe asymmetrically, right? Which might indicate they're in the wrong type of shoe anyway, in which case just a new shoe may not be sufficient. So that's one big tip, I think, uh, is to make sure you bring your shoes in uh, so that they can look at you. And if they're going to do a run analysis, then they kind of have that additional piece of information to, before looking at your form when you're running. 
the people at the runner's mind here can look at your shoes and see, are there any real clear indicators in your shoes that you might actually have some sort of biomechanical dysfunction that needs to be addressed with either a change in your running form or even a little bit different type of shoe. Does that make sense? That's perfect. All right. Okay, so the second thing we're going to talk about here, the next condition um, that I think I see really frequently and that's really important to understand is Achilles tendonitis. You're listening to the Doc on the Run podcast. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Runner's Heel Pain, self-diagnosis and self-treatment written by the world's leading expert on runner's heel pain. When runners with heel pain get help from Dr. Segler through a virtual doctor visit, they ask the same questions. How do I know I really have plantar fasciitis? What do I have to do to get my heel pain to go away? How can I stay fit and keep running while I heal my plantar fasciitis? Dr. Segler wrote the book on runner's heel pain specifically so any runner like you could get the same answers he gives to patients he sees in person. He wanted to create a way you could get $500 worth of expert advice for less than the cost of a copay right now, without waiting for some doctor's office to open. Runner's Heel Pain, Self-Diagnosis and Self-Treatment. This book will teach you exactly how the world's leading expert on runner's heel pain helps runners run and heal. Get the Kindle version on Amazon today for only $14.95. All right, welcome back to the Doc on the Run podcast. Okay, so the second thing we're going to talk about here, uh, the next condition um, that I think I see really frequently and that's really important to understand is Achilles tendonitis because the Achilles tendon is the largest tendon in your entire body. And, of course, we all know the, the, the tail of Achilles, right? But it's not quite as severe as that. You're not going to get shot with an arrow and die in all likelihood, <laughs> but you may feel like you're going to die if you've been training hard for months for a marathon and your Achilles tendon starts bothering you. So, um, Dawson, what do you see when, when people come in and they, they are worried that they have an Achilles tendon issue? Yeah. What do they usually talk about first? Um, so, I mean, we see it a lot, quite frankly, myself included, because I love high intensity. I love running fast and I love running volume. Marathons uh, is probably my favorite distance, quite frankly. And those two things loading at the same time can be really stressful on the body. Right. So oftentimes we see just discomfort, aches, sharp pain along the Achilles, uh, inflammation, or sometimes it's dull and achy, or sometimes it's really intense. Sometimes it's really tender to the touch. No matter if they're in a um, supportive shoe or a neutral shoe, doesn't really matter. They can still experience this issue. It makes weight loading, especially through the propulsion state of running, really hard, and you can start to compensate through it, which is a dangerous game to start playing, frankly. Yeah, that really is. So, you know, when people call me, they've usually had it for a long period of time. Most people don't call me when they have the very, very early stages. And the Achilles tendon issue is really a broad range of things. So to put it simply, you can get paratendonitis, where the little covering or sheath around the uh, Achilles tendon sort of fills up with fluid and you get fluid around the tendon. That's the very earliest thing. That's, easy, that's the easiest to fix too because it's just fluid around the tendon. The next thing is true tendonitis where you have some inflammation and fluid within the tendon itself. That's harder to fix but it's a, it's a little bit further along of that same continuum. If you ignore all of that and you continue to train long enough you will get tendinosis and tendinosis is where you've had chronic trauma, chronic inflammation, and actual degeneration and damage to the collagen bundles in the tendon itself. It gets thicker, it gets this lumpiness to it, and you can see it when you look at somebody that has tendinosis, when you compare their good tendon to their, their bad tendon, there's enormous difference in the thickness right in this little area of the tendon uh, up above the heel bone. So 
you really want to avoid that. We can fix that, but most people don't like the way we fix it. It's either PRP injection or surgery, basically. And that is extremely disruptive. So, you know, the Achilles tendon has to be taken seriously, um, and you have to try to do something initially to fix it. So the, the very earliest signs I ever hear from patients is they'll say, you know, it feels kind of weird. It feels like there's a sock or a rubber band or something around the tendon, um, just up above the heel bone in this area that we refer to as the watershed region that doesn't have really good blood flow. That's where you gets injured and it doesn't heal very quickly because the blood flow is not great there so you know you have to pay attention to that so if something feels a little odd around your Achilles tendon when you're doing hill repeats when you're on these really long runs in you know Woodside or in Marin or something um, we're doing lots of hills you've got to pay attention to that because if you shut that inflammation down initially you'll head off all the trouble but if you just say oh no no, no I've got this schedule I have to stick to my hill repeats I got to stick to my speed work and you ignore it that may be at your peril. So when people come in here, like what do you recommend for them? Like what do you have them do? So first things is understanding, again, training volume, right? Yeah. Um, and looking at the shoes, making sure they're not wearing old, worn out shoes. Right. Um, and if they have tight calves, it's about finding solutions to help not only re-strengthen the calf, but flexibility as well as a big key too. And, you know, if we need to moderate their running, we will. We'll, we'll present solutions such as, you know, rolling out. So there's great massage tools, self-therapy to help relax the calf out, as well as the Achilles to get in there, kind of help break up scar tissue and increase the blood circulation. One of my favorite tools because Achilles tendonitis is actually one of my chronic issues with my training volume and my speed. So there's a brace, an Achilles brace that I love wearing that has these silicone gel pockets that you can freeze. So post long runs and high intensity, I ice immediately so I can keep it at bay. That's the key here is just keeping things at bay so it doesn't become full blown tendonitis or tendinosis would be even a worst case yeah. scenario. For Those are really great too because it combines two therapies really. So it's compression and cryotherapy, right? Because you freeze it, it has these little gel pockets, it goes around the whole tendon, it pushes in and squeezes it and keeps that fluid from accumulating around the tendon after you do your workouts, which can be really helpful, I think. So, you know, it's not something to ignore. You know, you want to get it checked out or at least try to do something initially. But if it's in the early stages, frankly, lots of home treatments will work. There are lots of things you can do on your own, but you don't want to ignore it. That's the, I think, the, the main message here, yeah. right, is to, that you have to do something. If you just stick your head in the sand, you're going to wind up with real trouble. And don't freak out when you lower your running volume. I just had a patient who, a little over a week ago, uh, she did uh, Ironman Louisville and she had an issue um, and it ended up being her fastest Ironman ever and she didn't run basically for the month leading up to the race. Now granted she was paranoid about that, she was worried about that. Anyone with a brain who's a runner would be worried about yeah. not running. <laughs> Yet it turned out to be your fastest race ever. So you can you can still do well even if you modify your training schedule a bit. It's it's just a plan. It's an outline of how you should do things. Nobody has their plan go 100% intact, even if they don't get injured, right? That's so you good. have to be prepared to modify things and trust your plan, trust your own body, and trust your coach. I think that that's important, yeah. right? Yeah, believe in the training. Yeah, big part of it. and that'll take you a long way. So just make sure you don't avoid Achilles tendon issue. And if you come into some place like a runner's mind where you can you know, talk to a real expert who can look at your form, look at your shoes, see what your volume is like, and see if you know, you're really heading for trouble or not, then you can really um, do a lot for yourself to keep running without really having to worry so much about just completely blowing it right before the race. Yeah, we're all about prehab, not rehab, is exactly. the big thing for us. If you can catch it in the early stages, better off that way. It makes okay. life a lot easier.
You, know, you got to be proactive. That's the bottom line. I mean, and it makes total sense. I mean, you train forever for a marathon, right? It's not like you just decide, oh, I'm going to do one Wednesday. Yeah, <laughs> um, that'd be so impressive. You got to be, you know, but you have to understand that overtraining injuries can happen to anybody, and it can happen with a whole variety of stresses that are added that you maybe didn't plan for. And so, you know, you just have to be prepared to make any adjustments that you need so that you can stay on track. Just remember the end goal. And if you do that, you know, you can still uh, continue to train and do well, even if you're afraid that you have Achilles tendonitis creeping in and potentially disrupting your training. Great. All right, so the next thing we're gonna talk about is metatarsal stress fractures. Oh man, so stress fractures. <laughs> everybody worries about stress fractures. So this is like the classic thing. People worry if they do too much stuff too fast, they're gonna get a stress fracture. Well, they do happen. They happen to all kinds of people. I've had a stress fracture. My wife's had a stress fracture. I see tons of patients with stress fractures. Now, the big thing that I will say with this, it's really simple. I think you have to understand that a stress fracture is a range of trouble. Everybody thinks that when they get a stress fracture, what it is is a small crack in the bone that they see when you get to take an x-ray. The fact is, is that the overwhelming majority of the time that you get an x-ray, when you suspect you have a stress fracture, you see nothing. It's read as completely normal. That's because of how it works. There's a, and I think it's important to understand the range of how this works. The way I, I explain it to patients is I say, okay, look, let's take a coat hanger. If you start bending a coat hanger and you bend it a bunch of times, it actually starts to heat up. That's the first thing. It actually gets hot from the friction in the metal, but it doesn't actually change until you've bent it enough times. That's really like a stress response in the bone. The bone can bend a little bit, and if you really aggravate it with lots of back-to-back -back long runs or lots of back-to-back -back speed work episodes, you're likely to get inflammation within the bone. It heats up, basically. That's a stress reaction. If you get an MRI right then, the radiologist is going to read it as a stress fracture, and some doctor is going to tell you you have to have a fracture walking boot for six weeks, and that's complete malarkey. It's just not true. So if you keep bending the coat hanger, though, a little more, then you'll start to see physical deformation in the surface of the coat hanger. You get opacity in the color of the metal first, and then it actually starts to get surface cracks. That's more analogous to like a real stress fracture that I think of as a real stress fracture. If you keep running on that, it will crack, just like the coat hanger. And if you continue to ignore it, and you think, I'm tough, I can do this, it will completely break. And if you're dumb enough to keep running on it when your foot's black and blue, it'll move out of place. And that's when we get a displaced stress fracture. If you get a displaced stress fracture, somebody like me has to cut your foot open, put the bone back in position, put a little plate and some screws on it, and stabilize it. You do not want that, obviously. Now, in the very early stages, you don't have to have much to fix it. You basically just have to remove some pressure, remove some stress. It's a stress fracture. So think about that. If you decrease the stress enough so it can heal, you can continue to train. There are lots of strategies for doing that, from applying pads in other places or cutting out some of the material under that metatarsal, icing it, doing contrast baths or something to reduce in the inflammation. There are lots of ways to get it to calm down quickly, and there's lots of ways to do that where you can continue to train and run and still do your race, even if it's only a couple of weeks away or a few weeks away, if you're cautious and you, and you do the right things. So what do you guys do when you see somebody that's worried they have a stress fracture? You, you talk to them about volume? Do you look yeah. at their shoes? I mean, we talk to them about volume just to get an understanding of why this reaction might have occurred. And mm -hmm. oftentimes it's because of too many speed episodes or too much intensity, too much hill repeats, too much volume at once, back-to-back -back racing can do it. All these things sort of snowball effects into something like a stress reaction or a full-fledged uh, fracture sometimes. Yeah. Um, which is never fun to deal with because it's a, it's a hard troubleshooting at that point in time because even more stress just gets you into a worse situation. 
Some people will try to compensate by adding more cushion underneath the foot. And yeah, sometimes I can get you through some of these races. But again, we want to have a series of active therapies. So that might mean reducing the weight loading, the impact and stress and forces. And so we might suggest, okay, we might need to swim for a little bit or, or, or bike a little bit. Or some people will add compression for just blood circulation, which it can kind of help sometimes a little bit. But I mean, a bone reaction, a stress reaction, is a, it's a bone issue, right? There's not too much there we can do other than alleviating a lot of the loading, the stress, and the weight that it's taking on at that point in time. So it's tricky. Yeah, it can be tricky. Now, one of the things that I see patients do wrong is what they'll do is like what you suggest, some cushioning. So people will go get like a gel pad and they'll think, oh, I need a little pillow for my damaged metatarsal. And they put this pad that goes under the entire ball of the foot in their shoe and they walk on it and they think, well, it feels soft and squishy. It feels good. That's great. Well, that's good and bad. So it's bad in that when you add additional material under all of those bones, you add additional force that's a problem because it can add increased stress. So if you add it under all the other metatarsals but not the one that has the stress fracture in it, that will actually help. But you have to be cautious to not add additional material under the one that really hurts. And a lot of people do that as a mistake when they're trying to apply padding. You know, The other thing I think that you said is, is the active recovery part. So I completely disagree with the general premise that physicians dump on runners that say you should stop activity so that you can heal. Runners don't do well when they stop activity. That's my experience. That's what I believe is true. That's what studies have seen too. Right. So, you know, active recovery, like Dawson says, is better. So, you know, whether it means shifting to cycling, shifting to swimming, um, just modifying some of your runs and, you know, a combination of things where you take some pressure off the metatarsal and then maybe just hold off the hill repeats and speed work and stuff a little bit. Um, the goal in my mind is not to make you improve as fast as possible, but to make sure you improve fast enough to make it to race day intact while simultaneously maintaining as much fitness as possible. That should be the goal. And if you go on complete bed rest or completely stop running, that's not going to help you achieve your goals in my experience. Yeah. So um, you lose out on a lot of fitness at that point in time. You do. Yeah. So, and I don't know what you think about with, uh, you know, if you would change somebody's entire shoe, when they get a stress fracture or? Not necessarily, quite frankly. It, it really kind of depends on what ultimately led to this situation. Again, we could try to decrease the pressure by removing, you can add an insole to it, but we have to remove that pressure spot, as you mentioned. Right. And then some people might experiment with these larger geometry shoes with a bit more of a metal rocker to decrease some of that pressure. but. Not necessarily, it's a tricky situation. Yeah like, yeah, like the Hoka, you know, is one of those, right? Mm -hmm. So the Hokas, you know, have a big rocker under the forefoot, they decrease some of the loading of the forefoot and they can help. But at the same time, I am also not a proponent of like, if you're training for months and getting ready to do a race is switching your shoes. Yeah, it's dangerous. Now it is, <laughs> but it, you know, but at the same time, if you come in and, and we look at your shoes and you've actually done an entire ramp up, the entire build phase, everything for a marathon over the course of months in the same shoe and it's worn out, you may actually have gotten a stress fracture because you're pronating too much and kind of wobbly on this crushed EVA and in which case you don't need a different shoe, you just need a new shoe. Yep. And that does happen too, right? Mm -hmm. Like it certainly can happen. And some people that have um, too much flexibility in their foot, they're running on a shoe that's a little too flexible for them and that additional pronation can shift the weight, say from the fourth and fifth metatarsals to the th second and third, and then they get a stress fracture in one of those. So it is, you know, it is something that needs to be looked at, but 
it's not necessarily that you need to change your shoes, but you want somebody who's an expert like Dawson or any of the people at a runner's mind to take a look at your shoes and see, you know, is it worn out? Am I pronating through the shoe basically? Or am I running in maybe the wrong shoe or one that's not really perfect for my running form and biomechanics? I mean, I think that's a, that's a big clue too. Um, what are the real horror signs you see with stress fractures? Or something <laughs> when you look at them, you're just like, oh man, what are you doing? Uh, I mean, sometimes it's general inflammation, but a lot of it is tenderness. Like yeah. you can pretty much isolate that spot. You put a finger on it, you push right into it, and, and you can feel it. And if it alters the way that you're moving too, again, that's a dangerous game to be playing right. as well. Yeah, so for me, that's true. Pinpoint tenderness is a key with stress fractures, but also it's a range of things. Pain is sort of the first thing. Swelling is the second thing. So if you look at your feet and you can see that one's swollen compared to the other, the tendons on the top of the foot are a little less visible on one foot compared to another, that's indicative of a serious problem going on. If you get bruising, that's the worst sign. That means something broke, something tore, something cracked like the bone, and cause bleeding under the skin that you see as a bruise. So if somebody, if I look at them and I'm concerned they have a stress fracture and have bruising, that's not a good sign and it's something that has to be taken really seriously. Yeah. All right, so thanks Dawson, thanks for that info on yeah. uh, stress fracture, I think that's really helpful. Uh, the next thing we're gonna talk about is shin splints. You're listening to the Doc on the Run podcast, don't go anywhere, we'll be right back. Runner's Heel Pain, self-diagnosis and self-treatment written by the world's leading expert on runner's heel pain. When runners with heel pain get help from Dr. Segler through a virtual doctor visit, they ask the same questions. How do I know I really have plantar fasciitis? What do I have to do to get my heel pain to go away? How can I stay fit and keep running while I heal my plantar fasciitis? Dr. Segler wrote the book on runner's heel pain specifically so any runner like you could get the same answers he gives to patients he sees in person. He wanted to create a way you could get $500 worth of expert advice for less than the cost of a copay right now, without waiting for some doctor's office to open. Runner's Heel Pain, Self-Diagnosis and Self-Treatment. This book will teach you exactly how the world's leading expert on runner's heel pain helps runners run and heal. Get the Kindle version on Amazon today for only $14.95. All right, welcome back to the Doc on the Run podcast. Uh, the next thing we're going to talk about is shin splints. So shin splints are common. I had my own bout of shin splints that went on for literally decades. When I was a kid, I was running tons. Basically any Saturday morning that I could get my dad to get up out of bed and take me to a race, no matter how far away it was, uh, I was doing 10Ks and I started doing those runs really young. And I got shin splints. I ran in really hilly areas. I got shin splints. I tried everything. There was actually, this will say how old I am, but there used to be a, um, a television show called That's Incredible. And on that television show, they actually had an episode where they had sorbethane inserts where this new space-aged <laughs> material that was supposed to absorb shock and they showed somebody running in slow motion and decreasing the, all of the vibration and all that stuff. My dad actually drove me to Atlanta to buy sorbethane inserts because it was the only place we could find them. Um, it didn't really help. Then I got the Nike Air Pegasus, which was like the new cool air cushioned insert uh, or you know midsole, yeah. and it didn't help. And I went for literally years with shin splints. Every time I would train hard and do hill repeats, anytime I would do lots of hilly runs, uh, and uh, it never really went away. And that even progressed into adulthood when I would do really lots of hill runs, uh, lots of hill repeats and stuff, I would get shin splints. That didn't change for me until I actually changed my running form. Uh, when I changed my running form, 
that fixed it. And I have not ever had a case of shin splints since. I've done lots of marathons, lots of Ironmans, no shin splints. Um, so, you know, there are basically two, broadly speaking, two kinds of shin splints. There are anterior shin splints, which are effectively just irritation of the bone where the tibialis anterior muscle is pulling really hard on your foot, trying to get your foot up high enough to run uphill. So if you're doing lots of hill repeats or lots of runs on really hilly courses, you may get anterior shin splints. That'll basically resolve immediately if you just quit doing hills. Then there's medial tibial stress syndrome, which is yeah. the more common thing, the more troublesome thing. It's where you actually get tenderness when you push on the middle part of the tibia or your shin bone. And it, you know, it can be lots of different things. And it, they're really poorly understood. In fact, when I was in residency, there was a guy I was working with who's an orthopedic surgeon. He was a marathon runner. And I thought, Dr. Johnson will know. I was actually doing a presentation um, for the surgical department on running injuries. And I asked him, I said, what is your opinion? What are shin splints? And he paused and he said, Chris, shin splints are something you send to somebody else because you can't operate on them. And I said, so you really don't even know what they are. So it's not well understood. I mean, this is a guy who's a runner and an orthopedic surgeon. And he didn't really and truly know how to define shin splints. So some people will say it's from uh, the posterior tibial tendon pulling on the periosteum. Some people will say it's just a stress reaction in the bone that causes swelling under the covering of the bone or the periosteum. Um, but it's treatable, right? Yep. And in my case, I tried all this stuff for literally decades. The only thing I did was change my run form so I was less of a heel striker and boom, they're gone. So. Uh, I also tried icing. In fact, I got, this is just to say, okay, I, I, I should know what I'm doing, but I did something really stupid. So <laughs> nobody's immune from this. <laughs> I actually had shin splints. I was training for a marathon. I was determined to have a PR. The shin splints got really bad the week before the race. Oh, I took one of those blue ice packs and put it on the front of my shin, wrapped it in an ace wrap. And I was determined to just ice it enough to get the inflammation down the yeah. night before the race. So I put it on and after a few minutes, I was like, wow, that hurts. But I was not going to let this go. I said, I'm going to do it for 15 minutes. When I took it off, my leg was white and hard as a rock. And the next morning, I had, fracture, I had uh, frostbite blisters on the front of my shin that I had there when I did the marathon. That is not the best way to get a PR. So icing can help, but you can also overdo it, as evidenced by my stupidity. <laughs> so... Um, you know, there are lots of things you can do. I mean, you can ice it and you can do the sleeves to provide compression. You can run with compression socks. There are lots of things you can do. You can stretch. You can stretch the posterior tibial tendon. You can do exercises. But in my experience, it's really run form and making sure you have the right shoes. If you're, you know, if you're running in the wrong shoes and you're too unstable, they're too soft for you, that can cause shin splints, I think. Um, but I'm curious what you guys see here. And, uh, you know, when people come in with shin splints, like what, what does it seem like they're the sort of connecting um, conditions? Is it the shoes? Is it their run form? What it's, it's a combination of things, you know, again, it, it's poorly misunderstood and there's a lot of contributing factors that make it a little tricky, a little finicky mm -hmm. to deal with. And oftentimes, yeah, we're going to look at your running shoes and we'll do a whole gait analysis to better assess what's going on and how your biomechanics are, how you're moving, how weight is coming across the foot to get a better idea. But it's the surfaces that you're running on too, really right. hilly runs versus flatter runs. Are you running on a banked surface and therefore or only experience, yeah, right? or concrete, asphalt, um, banked surfaces, so you're only filling it, the pressure onto one side, compensating on the other side. And so many of these things can wreak havoc and it can be so tricky to look at. Um, heavy heel striking can cause it too. You start to feel that impact reverberate straight up into the anterior part of it. Um, a lot of training volume and a lot of intensity I find can flare up. I have a, a team member on staff who deals with that medial tibial mm -hmm. uh, pressure or shin splint there that we're working through. Uh, and so we'll assess a few different 
guidelines or areas to get a better understanding of where we need to start troubleshooting. Do we need to replace the shoe because it's so worn out and you're not getting the cushion of support that you need anymore? Or is it the intensity or your heavy heel striker and we need to adjust some of the basic running forms that way? Right. So. So with shin splints, you know, it's not a huge problem. It's probably not going to kill you. Uh, it's, if, if you just come in and get an assessment and make sure that you're running in the right type of shoe, that you don't have a shoe that's really worn out, uh, and that your running form isn't off in a way that's really contributing to them, uh, to the shin splints, then that will really help and help you continue to train and continue to go on. And just one final word about shin splints. A lot of people ask me about this. And there's this exertional compartment syndrome that is written about a lot, I think, because it's one of those frightening things. And basically what it is is the muscles build up pressure and it builds up pain and it can actually damage the muscle. The way that we check you for that is we would actually, you know, if you came into the office, a doctor would look at you if they suspect you have it, they would have you go literally run up and down the stairs and they would stick a needle into there with a pressure gauge to see what the pressure is. And if it's too high, then it assumes that you have compartment syndrome and a fasciotomy or surgical release of that compartment where we cut it open and don't sew it back up is what the treatment is. That is not a good treatment. So I have seen lots of runners. I have looked for it. I have seen people that are runners that are convinced they have it when they really just have shin splints or a tibial stress fracture. I had never done one of these fasciotomies. I've only done fasciotomies on patients with real trauma where they've been run over by a truck or something. And it's a different situation. It's not exertional. Um, so I think that's very rare. So if you come in and get assessed by uh, somebody who knows running form, who knows running shoes, and who can try to combine those things and help you understand what you've had going on with your shin splints, you should be in good shape. All right, so the last thing we're gonna talk about is iliotibial band syndrome or IT band syndrome. So the IT band that you hear about a lot, it's written about a lot on blogs and uh, websites that talk about running injuries. The IT band or iliotibial band is a band of tissue that goes down the outside of your leg. It starts at the ilium, which is one of the parts of your hip, uh, and goes all the way down to the tibia or your shin bone just below the knee. So most people that get IT band syndrome um, know that they're tight. like. Almost every time I get a massage before an Ironman or with a sports massage therapist, they always comment on how tight my IT bands are. Now, I've only had even, I had a very, very small episode of it one time training for an Ironman. I think my saddle was in the wrong position. Um, I kind of noticed it. I'm aware of it because of what I do in yeah. seeing patients. So I adjusted my saddle mates and it completely went away. I didn't really do anything to treat it. But it can really be a problem because this is extremely painful. So unlike some of the other conditions that can just sort of nag you basically, IT band syndrome, if it gets painful enough, it can really stop you in your tracks because your knee will be killing you, right? So what I hear from patients, they have pain on the outside of the knee and uh, it's often related to activity, not surprisingly. Uh, what do you hear from people that come in the store that have IT band issues, they're worried about that? Yeah, it's, it's usually an outside knee pain. Yeah. It's really uncomfortable if they're walking up a staircase or down a staircase. Um, they don't seem to notice it as much while they're running, but afterwards they notice some tenderness going Right, on. so it kind of flares it up, right? Mm -hmm. But it's really that substantial flexion, or if they go to the gym and they're doing like squats or something, that's just a killer, right? Yeah. So if they're doing weight training to try to supplement their their run training, they may notice that when they're doing lunges and these deep knee bends and things where you really like have a lot of flexion in the knee and it really moves the IT band further, right? Um, so what do you think helps? What are the things you guys do when you see somebody with IT band syndrome? So again, we'll, we'll always look at footwear just to make sure everything is fine there, but a lot of it is 
kind of understanding what their training looks like right now, maybe reducing some of the volume as we rehab it. So we'll suggest things like massage therapy or self-therapy, right? So getting on a foam roller or a massage ball to really open up the hips a little bit better right. and increase the flexibility tends to help. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So there's, there's lots of stuff that's been written about this. And there are studies that actually have been published that show that IT band syndrome can actually be treated in just a couple of days if you completely immobilize the leg in a leg immobilizing brace and ice it like virtually around the clock. Mm -hmm. Who's gonna do that? <laughs> right, I mean. right. I mean, it's not realistic. Like unless you can take a few days off work, how are you <laughs> gonna do that and, and hobble around on crutches? The point is, is that it's something that is easily treatable because it's inflammation of the bursa and the band of tissue where it's going over the knee and that's what's causing the pain. So you can slow down that inflammation, but you don't have to panic. It's not like you have an Achilles tendon that's about to rupture. You have, you know, a progressive inflammatory condition that's getting aggravated by activity. So avoiding the things that cause pain are certainly helpful. The only caveat to that is that most people who have tight IT bands and they start foam rolling will say that's really painful, mm -hmm. right? Like I, I use a rumble roller, which is a really aggressive one. And I have the black one, which is like, kind of like a four wheel drive tire. Yeah. Um, and so it's super hard. It's very effective, but it does hurt when you roll your IT bands if they're tight. Mine are always tight. I'm just lucky in that I haven't, for whatever reason, really gotten IT band syndrome. I'm sure my day's coming because again, they're super tight. And that's really what predisposes you to it, right? Is the, the tightness and then maybe add in a little gait abnormality, a little yeah. bit of the wrong things, maybe running stairs or something that aggravates it. And then you're in trouble. Right. Yeah, we have a lot of commuters or people in this area at least have desk jobs and so that can tighten the hips up quite a bit and if you're commuting at all from city to city you're in that seated position which can tighten the hips too. And looking at running form is another area we look at too. So if we have hips that drop quite a bit sometimes I can add pressure on the IT band or a heavy over pronator with that hypermobile foot type that can add pressure along the kinetic chain too. So it's right. looking at a couple different areas how we can troubleshoot things I yeah. think. Yeah, so I mean that, you know, I really don't know why mine are so tight, but I do house calls. So I drive over 40,000 miles a year driving around the Bay Area seeing runners. So that probably is not good for me, um, but that's what I do. And, uh, you know, strengthening exercises for your health, those to loosen the hips, kind of open up that hip angle, right, can, can really help. But you've got, how are you going to know what the problem is if you don't have somebody assess you? So even if you come to a runner's mind and you're not coming here necessarily because you think you need a new pair of shoes, you may. I'm not saying you need new shoes. I'm just saying that you need somebody who knows running form, who can look at you and assess what's going on so you can understand what the true cause of your IT band syndrome is so you can address that. Because if you just ice it and put a brace on it, it may calm it down. But if you plan to continue to be active, that's not going to fix it long term. You've got to address the root cause. Yeah, a Band-Aid only works for so long. And that's what we call those situations when you're adding compression or KT taping or what have you. They're Band-Aid solutions and you have to get down to the root cause of it so ultimately it doesn't become chronic. That's right. You don't want to just treat the symptoms. You want to get to the root cause of the problem so you can continue running and continue training as much as you need, right, to yeah. accomplish whatever your goal is, whether that's a marathon, 10K, or whatever. Yeah. All right, Dawson, thanks for having me today. This I think this is very helpful, <laughs> and um, hopefully uh, all of your athletes will continue to run, continue to train without any trouble. And uh, just remember, you know where to go to get help if you need it. Come to a runner's mind and um, get a run form analysis and a shoe assessment to see if your gait is off or if you're running in the wrong type of shoe uh, so that you continue to train as much as you need. Thanks. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> if you have a question that you would like answered as a future edition of the Doc on the Run podcast, send it to me. And then make sure you join me in the next edition of the Doc on the Run podcast. 
Thanks again for listening.